0: Hello. You have discovered The Felon File. Formerly known as the 542 and the Blue podcast. FelonFile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author, and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today. The Story of the broadest Miller Manhunt in 1927. Newspapers nationwide that year wrote about the 13-day murder and manhunt incident in 1927. It was called the largest manhunt in Western North Carolina history. How did it end? Is there more to the story than what the papers said? Listen and decide. Background music. Hard-boiled hosted by Purple Planet. Scott. You're online.
1: Salutations and greetings, podcast listeners, and welcome back to Felon File. As our producer extraordinaire pointed out, Felon File is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Stories of crime, court cases, punishment, the good guys, the bad guys and things that are kind of weird and strange or stuff that we think that might be of interest to the people that listen to Felon File. Thank you again Victoria for starting us out. Many in the Appalachian Mountains of western North Carolina are familiar with the murder and killing rampage that occurred in 1906 Asheville, North Carolina. The gunman Will Harris His manhunt and killing spree related to the shooting of several individuals, both white and African-American, in the city of Asheville at that time, 1906. Even today, or at least for a little while anyway until the monument is demolished by order of the city council, you can see the scars his stray bullets had made on the large, Vance monument obelisk in downtown Asheville. Now, unfortunately, as of this recording, the obelisk no longer exists. It had been taken down, but there is a court order stopping it from being removed or from the pedestal being removed from that location. We'll just have to wait and see what happens with that. Now, Asheville tour guides would point out the marks on the monument and tell why the story was famous, particularly in part due to Thomas Wolfe and Thomas Wolfe's story, The Child by Tiger. Wolfe was about six years old when Will Harris' incident happened and the manhunt occurred. It seems to have made a very strong impression on Thomas Wolfe. His 1937 short story is a disturbing account of the consequences of racism and mankind's inhumanity. Narrated by... The story character of Spangler, it recounts events that occurred 25 years previously in a town in the American South. The main character, an African-American male who worked for an upper middle class white family. He was respected and liked by a lot of the young people in the community, but he did hide a dark side. The character ends up going on a killing spree, indiscriminately shooting police officers and other, and other African Americans in the community. Actions arouse the, the murderous passion and intentions of the community. Cornered, he is shot over 300 times, the same as Will Harris was in real life. Spangler's exposure to the brutality on both sides opens him to the discovery of man's dual nature. Man has a capability for horrifying evil, as well as for goodness, to be two worlds together, a tiger and a child. The story is basically an exploration of the nature of evil in man, good versus evil, and the fact that they can flow from the same spigot. There was a similar incident to the extreme manhunt that went on for Will Harris. Uh, this one occurred in Morganton, North Carolina, in 1927. Now, many of the newspapers of the day wrote the story of Brodius Miller with the headlines such as, The Largest Manhunt in Western North Carolina History, and compared it to the manhunt for Will Harris, and it may have been one of the largest, and still possibly is. Brodius Miller was a 23-year-old African-American male living with his wife, Marie, in the Eagle Market Street area of downtown Asheville, according to the 1924 census. The area then was known as Hell's Acre, also the scene of Will Harris' murder spree in 1906, as a matter of fact. Miller would have been just a little younger than Thomas Wolfe at the time of Will Harris' killing spree. And he was also living in Greenwood County, South Carolina when Harris went on his rampage with a newly bought rifle. This occurring in the same Asheville district Miller was documented to reside in in the 1924 census. The atmosphere in Asheville and other similar sized cities was very tense in the mid-1920s. Many African Americans from South Carolina, where Miller was from, had traveled to Asheville, the nicknamed Paris of the South, seeking work in avoiding the lynch mob hysteria and activities that were seeming to be common everywhere else. Asheville was in its golden age, so to speak. Workers and laborers were needed for building and operations that kept the city and its infrastructure going. Partially because of the influx of the working force, which which happened to mostly be African-American, leaders of the day in the newspapers warned the African-American population, the men to stay away from local white females. Jim Crow had his hand in the city of Asheville. The city had already segregated its water fountains, its bathrooms, and other public and private parts of the city. The newspapers in 1926 and 1927 reported a series of alleged sexual assaults that had occurred, including one that happened in Asheville that led to the execution of a South Carolina man, a Mr. Alvin Mansell. At Mensell's trial, the state deployed National Guard troops to the city of Asheville, where one detachment actually stood guard in the courtroom, while they were armed with Springfield rifles. Other troops patrolled the streets to keep order. On two occasions, mobs had attempted to break Mansell from the jail to publicly hang or lynch or kill him. Once at the Buncombe County Jail, the second time when he was moved to the jail in Charlotte because of the hostilities that were happening in Buncombe County. The courtroom troops became an issue in Mansell's appeal after he was found guilty and sentenced to the electric chair. The North Carolina Supreme Court was not moved by this or other issues brought to their attention in the appeal and the death verdict upheld and was followed through with. A group of Asheville African-American business leaders tried to explain the situation to the general public and the press of the day. These newcomers, they said in their newspaper ad, were brought to Asheville by construction companies to aid in the creation of the white man's residential paradise. Having come from picking cotton and hoeing corn in the fields, we suddenly had pockets bulging with money, dives and rendezvous that exerts a wicked way. Now Bodius Miller's family was part of this migration from the Lower South to Asheville. His foster parents, who in reality were his uncle and aunt, Thomas and Alfea, moved to Asheville for construction and housekeeping jobs. The Bow Weevil had basically robbed them of their farming livelihood and, they, and the election of 1898 had inaugurated the Democrats' race-based campaign and politics into the communities. In 1911 when Brodius was seven, a mob led by Joshua Ashley a member of the South Carolina General Assembly, is reported to have captured a young African-American young man accused of raping a woman in Honeyapath, South Carolina, just three miles north of where Brodias' foster parents' home was and where he lived. The mob hung the accused upside down from a telephone pole and shot his body several times. When Brodius Miller was 13 years old, another out-of-control mob in Abbeville, South Carolina, 20 miles south of Asheville, attacked and lynched Anthony Crawford, a very prosperous African-American cotton farmer, for arguing with a white shopkeeper over the price of cotton. Men drugged Crawford from the jail and hung him. His crime? Not an assault, but just disorderly contact in public for arguing over the price to be paid for cotton. This was the environment that Miller grew up with and grew up in. Influenced by, no doubt, but of course not an excuse for his actions. Previously, Brodius had been a field laborer in 1921, when he ended up being convicted of murdering his African American landlady. A South Carolina state court psychiatrist diagnosed him not of sound mind. Brodius was sentenced to three years in the overcrowded prison in Columbia, South Carolina. The city of Asheville, North Carolina was supposed to be Brodius Miller's new start. His 18 year old girlfriend had recently moved from South Carolina to be with him and they settled in a tenement house in downtown Asheville, the area again known as Hell's Acre. A year later, Brodius returned to Greenwood County, South Carolina. He was caught and arrested for a house break-in. He ended up being convicted and sentenced to one year on the chain gang. After he completed that, he returned back to Asheville in 1927 where where he was hired by the home builder Dante Martin. Martin, a well-known builder whose constructed homes, many of them still standing today and being lived in, he was contracted to build a new house and estate for Colonel Franklin Pierce Tate in Morganton, North Carolina. Uh, This home is now listed on the National Registry of Historic Places. Uh, Martin moved most of his crew of workers and people to a boarding house close to where they were working. Now, because it was a good job and the work was going to take quite a while, Brodius Miller had his new wife join in there. Nothing unusual about that. Now, at that time, there was a 15-year-old young lady who was a mill worker by the name of Gladys Kincaid, who every day walked past a boarding house to and from her place of employment, which was a hosiery mill. She did this every day, and one day she didn't make it home one of her brothers and a friend of his were sent to look for her they found her moaning and barely alive under some bushes she'd been attacked with her head fatally smashed by an iron pipe the pipe was found on the ground beside her a neighbor reported and later testified that she had seen an african-american male walking along the road The man wore a yellow raincoat and held a short, iron pipe in his hand. Now, with this information, the hunt was on as well as the media circus. Black men in the surrounding communities were taken in for interrogation. Not just by the authorities, but by regular citizens. Because Miller lived so close to the crime scene and his past criminal history was known, he became a target of the investigation a search of his boarding house room, located a bloody yellow raincoat hidden behind a door. Now that a suspect had been identified, the hunt was on. Newspapers reported over 2,000 men were organized into a search party for Miller. Now that's not counting the unorganized random groups that formed up and went to look for him many drawn in by the $500 local and state reward for Miller's capture. The search and its fallout went on for several days. The governor ended up declaring Miller an outlaw. Being declared an outlaw basically just made an open season on a person and pretty much you could be shot on sight by just about anyone by order of the state. On June 28, Miller entered the home of a Charlie Ingram, located on Coldwater Creek. Ingram's wife was outside with some other women, hoeing in a cornfield. Miller stole some milk and cornbread from the kitchen. But when the daughter came in and found him in the kitchen, she screamed and Miller jumped out the window and fled all in view of the women in the cornfield who identified him. Posse members with bloodhounds were soon notified and arrived on the scene. The responding men, once they arrived, observed movement in the bushes near the Ingram home. And of course, the posse members ended up opening fire. This resulted in the death of two of Ingram's chickens. The next morning, news spread of the previous day's events. Carloads of men again headed out into the mountains, some looking for what they defined as justice and others just looking for the reward money. Miller was again seen that evening breaking into a spring house. Posse members quickly arrived with dogs and began a long pursuit lasting late into the night. Once more, he was alleged to have been spotted and fired at. Uh, the figure seen at a distance as it crossed a railroad trestle near and over Wilson Creek. Uh, the search and hunt continued for another week, with massive amounts of gunfire directed at almost anything that might resemble the one in Fugitive. One man in the posse was a 42-year-old man by the name of Commodore Vanderbilt Burleson and Commodore was actually his name, it wasn't a title, but it was not a title. Burleson had grown up in Linville Falls, a small mountain community at the upper end of the Linville Gorge. The son of a mountain guide and hunter and tracker, he had learned well from his father. Burleson had worked as a police officer in nearby Morganton. He also was a well-known carpenter and building contractor in the area. A Methodist, teetotaling former alcoholic in the early 1920s, he was known to have joined the Morganton, North Carolina, clan, becoming his uh, leader at one point. And in 1925, he had been a member of the grand jury that recommended Burke County public institutions quit employing African Americans. That makes no sense to me. Starting at the spring house, members of the posse tracked the fugitive's trail to an empty milk jar about 100 yards away. From there, footprints led up the wooded mountainside behind a church. Burleson recognized the tracks as the same as he had followed in Caldwell County a few days before. One foot was covered with rags with two toes sticking out. The trackers split up. They agreed that if anyone came up Upon any sign or tracks they would sing out with a Bob White whistle to alert the others. It didn't take long before a new track was found and a new trail established. Then the whistle of Bob White soon sang out all over the mountain. Commodore Burleson, working his way up the mountain's dense undergrowth with a forty five caliber Colt in his hand, ended up intercepting Brodeus Miller. Miller, while trying to shake his obvious pursuers from Morganton to the base of the Grandfather Mountain, had worn out his shoes in the first few days of his flight. He had wrapped his bleeding feet in whatever rags he could find or steal. Burleson reported he came across Miller coming out of the Linville Gorge behind the Concord United Methodist Church. The Linville Gorge is thought of as one of the East Coast's most scenic and rugged gorges created by the erosive action of the Linville River. Uh, It's been called the Grand Canyon of Eastern USA, the steep walls of the gorge itself enclosing the Linville River for about 12 miles. Miller was armed with a single shot shotgun that apparently he had stolen. Seeing Burleson, Miller aimed at him and took a quick shot, the lead shot striking an old stump that Burleson had dived behind. Returning fire, he used the last shot of the Colt 45. He mortally struck and killed Miller. His later report with authorities was that he shot in self-defense. Some of the posse went to notify the sheriff of what had happened, but before the sheriff uh, could arrive on the scene, Burleson and his friends had loaded the body into a car and raced to the county seat. Arriving at the courthouse, Burleson and his friends dropped the body on the floor at the entrance of the courthouse and it didn't take long for crowds to converge to view the spectacle. Miller's young wife was contacted and she arrived and identified the body as it lay on the floor. Soon the courthouse was full of curiosity seekers of all types wanting to see the body. All these individuals wanted to see the body and they showed up trying to gain access to the courthouse. The body ended up being moved outside to the courthouse square. More and more people continued to show up, creating an almost carnival-like atmosphere. Things weren't a free-for-all, though, at the county courthouse. Uh, Sheriff deputies made eight arrests for public disorder during the macabre display. One individual was arrested for attempting to kick and stomp the body as it lay on the square. Seven of the men charged would later plead guilty. The man who attempted to kick and stomp the dead body argued that he was not guilty. And the court disagreed and he and convicted him. He appealed the guilty verdict all the way up to the North Carolina Supreme Court. And he didn't have any success with his appeals. Now, this was Sunday, July 3rd. The manhunt for Miller had been ongoing for about 13 days, almost two weeks. The Ku Klux Klan had gathered in town for the 4th of July celebration, this in itself adding to the ticking time bomb of local unrest. The Raleigh News and Observer newspaper condemned the display with the headline, Morganton churchgoers applaud a gory matinee. The incident was investigated by a representative of the governor's office, and reviewed by the state Supreme Court. The shooting of Miller was found to be justified. Other atrocities committed in the name of locating Miller were not even addressed. The beatings of African Americans accused of hiding Miller, damages to property, and fires that were set were all overlooked and received very little follow-up. Now, the story could have ended there with the governor's office investigation in the court review. Yet, there may be other parts to the story that people aren't really aware of or didn't put together. Now, if you recall in a previous Felon Foul podcast, episode number two, the Asheville, North Carolina, Montford Avenue murders. On a morning in May, 1927, a maid walking to work discovered the body of a woman in a ravine on Montfort Avenue. This began one of the most sensational crimes, investigations, and trials in that time period. The investigation and trial had impact throughout Buncombe County and the city of Asheville. Allegations of a cover-up, involvement of the Ku Klux Klan, mishandled evidence, all this was the talk of the time. A reorganization of the Asheville Police Department with the firing of 13 of their officers, which is close over half the force at that time. There were two other murders that occurred in the Asheville community at the same time, where the women victims were killed with a pipe, as was the victim on Montfort Avenue. Miss Cooper was killed with a pipe and carried to a site next to the house, the pipe left behind. Ms. Cooper's nurse, a Miss Monique, was charged with the murder later on, but was acquitted by the North Carolina Supreme Court. Later documentation done by the Asheville newspapers that was never heard in the first trial showed that the nurse could not have physically moved the body of the murder victim herself to where it was located. Somebody much stronger would have had to have done it. There was also the murder of a young widow before that, and less than a block away that was committed also by the use of a pipe. The murder weapon once more left behind at the scene of the crime. This suggested a possible link to the two crimes, but nothing was ever connected. Checking records, it appears that Miller was in town at the time of these killings, not leaving Asheville until after the second killing had happened. Pipes and blows to the head of the women, a commonality to all three murders. Now, is there a connection? We do know Miller is suspected of killing two other women in South Carolina in one home break-in and doing prison time for both. Could he have been responsible for the Montford Avenue killings? Possibly. We know that his adoptive mother figure, his aunt Walker, had worked as a house servant. Many were employed in the Montford area. Perhaps Miller had felt comfortable walking in the early morning hours in the Montford community when many of the workers would be on their way to work in the area, and many of the workers being African American. Both of the Montford killings were thought to have occurred in the same time frame of the early morning. If nothing else possible, an idea worthy of maybe some more research and investigation We'll get back to you on that. That's our podcast for this week. I hope you found it of interest. If you have comments, opposing viewpoints, or suggestions of of possible future podcasts, drop us a line. Victoria and I would be really happy to hear from you. You can reach us at felonfile at gmail.com or you can get us directly through felonfile.com website where there's some links there and at scottlunsfordauthor.com, where you can contact and reach out to both of us. We'd love to hear from you. And while you're checking out our website, be sure to check out our stuff. We have coffee mugs. We have some T-shirts and some other items that you can purchase online that have the Felon File logo. If you want to make your coworkers a little nervous, drink your coffee out of a Felon File coffee mug it might just start an interesting conversation so check out our stuff for coffee mugs and t-shirts and the and the like also speaking of coffee if you'd like to help out with this podcast uh, you can buy victoria and myself a cup of coffee uh, by the link at the bottom of the webpage. and help pay for some of our research material that we're buying copies that we get from state archives we have to pay for the copies and we're trying to our best to keep the podcast commercial free as much as we possibly can it's a hobby for me i'm not trying to make any money off of it but thanks again for listening we do appreciate you all we appreciate the emails and messages we're getting from all over the world In the coming week, remember to be safe and be secure. If you have the opportunity, try to do something nice for somebody or several people. It'll do you some good, do them some good and make the world, hopefully a little bit a better place if everybody did it. So in the meantime, we'll talk to you guys next Saturday at seven o'clock Eastern standard time here in the United States coming to you from Western North Carolina in the great state of North Carolina. We'll talk to you all later. Bye, y'all.
0: You have been listening to the Felon File podcast with your host, Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings, go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these web pages. This is Victoria, your producer. Thank you for listening. Two, one, end. I almost forgot. If you would like to support the Felon File podcast, please go to buymeacoffee.com/felonfile. Here you can buy Scott a cup of coffee or help purchase some of the research material and expenses that it takes to do Felon File. That's coffee.com Backslash Felon File Once more thank you for listening.